You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. Back by popular demand is Mr. Pierre Rouchard. Pierre and I have been having conversations about Bitcoin for more than five years now, and he has an in-depth understanding of the code, how exchanges work, mining, and everything else in between. And that's why he's the perfect person to have for a deep dive into ordinals and the impact of people being able to put NFTs onto the base layer of the Bitcoin protocol. Many people in the space are currently debating whether this is a good thing or bad thing, and there's no one better than Pierre to come on and provide a good objective look at what it means and whether it potentially presents an attack vector to the protocol in the long term. So without further delay, here's my chat with Mr. Pierre Rochard. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investors Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm here with Pierre. Pierre, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Preston. All right. What the hell is going on here with this ordinal stuff? I, uh, you know, on the face of it, I'm just looking at it. It's like, hey, it's a free and open market. Like, just let let this be. But I think for most people, they might not even know what we're talking about right now with respect to ordinals. So just give people a really simple way for them to understand this, Pierre. Yeah, sure thing. So the really simple way to understand it is that in 2021, we activated a soft fork called Taproot. Taproot completely changed how Bitcoin scripting, how smart contracts on Bitcoin are done. And one of the differences with past scripting systems in Bitcoin is that there's really no limit to how much data you can put in what is called an input. So an input is the piece of the transaction. In fact, most transactions have several inputs that allows you to unlock Bitcoin from what's called an unspent transaction output, a pre-existing output that came from another past transaction. So inputs are the unlocking mechanism. Typically, um, they have a digital signature in them that is from the same private key that generated the address that's in the output. And so the script says, you know, whoever can prove that they control this address can unlock these Bitcoin in the future. And then the way, the way you prove it is by putting a signature inside of an input. Ordinals and inscriptions, what they've done is because the input in Taproot, the pay to Taproot input does not have a limit on its size or its, the operations in it, they've pushed lots of data in there. And then they have a way of interpreting that data to essentially be able to store arbitrary files in Bitcoin's blockchain. So in, uh, you know, it, so far it's been images. So they've put like JPEGs and PNGs in there, but they've also put actual software in the sense that uh, you can put JavaScript in there. And then when you extract it, you can run that code and play Minesweeper or whatever from JavaScript that was encoded inside of Bitcoin's blockchain. Okay. So I think for anybody hearing that, it, it sounds very concerning from on the surface without having any type of uh, deep intellectual understanding of, of what all that means. So 
Going back further than 2021, which you referenced, we had the SegWit update. Prior to SegWit, and this was in uh, what year are we talking? Is 2017 or no? Yeah, no, 18. So SegWit activated at the end of 2017. Yeah, in August or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so before SegWit, a transaction would have the input, it would have the scripts and the signature, and then it has the output. These were one megabit blocks prior to SegWit. SegWit comes along and we increase this to four megabytes with three megabytes being the witness data and one megabyte being the input and the output. So in that one megabyte input output portion of of every block, you're saying that the input now has an unbound amount of of data so you can exceed the one megabytes. Is that is that correct? At the block level there's still the block size limit. And so meaning that uh, in practice, a taproot input can take up a whole block. Mm-hmm. So up to four megabytes. And that's something that we actually saw yesterday was that it, it was almost, uh, you know, just one, a- one, one input uh, script that was taking up, you know, it was like 98% of the whole block size limit, but the block size limit is still there. It's just that there's no limit at the input or transaction level, meaning that one of these JPEGs can crowd out any other kind of transaction from that block if some, some way, somehow, they are paying uh, a fee uh, in order to take up that space. So you're talking about, and let's uh, dig into the event that you're talking about yesterday, because the picture of it is... I don't want to say concerning, but it just kind of like makes your eyebrows go up, kind of like, okay, well, that doesn't seem good because it literally consumed that entire block, that four megabyte block. And this was a Luxor mining pool that mined this block. They included the block and it had no fee attached to it because they mined the block and they can pick which transaction they want in the block. Now, if you're, my, if you're a miner part of that mining pool, you would think that they would be looking to reallocate their resources somewhere else because Luxor basically made the decision on behalf of everybody who was allocating resources to them to choose one transaction with no fee attached to it. So the amount of fees that were collected for, for mining that block and doing all the work for that block wasn't conducted. They, didn't, they chose to have a lower fee in the block. So walk us through some of this. Yeah, so in this particular case with Luxor, because of how their payout is structured to those who are providing hash rate to their pool, it's actually Luxor that absorbed that absence of fee. So they absorbed that cost themselves. I think, though, that... Which would have been about how much up here? Sorry to interrupt you, but how much would that normally have, have been that they would have made additionally for beyond the block reward? Because there is excess capacity in block space right now, the estimate I've seen was $2,000 worth of fees. And I think that it was a mistake on their part from the optics of it. Yes. Would have just put a transaction fee in there anyway, even though they know they're going to collect it back at least it would have looked better uh, than to just put it in a zero fee. And unless their intent is to troll, uh, you know, mm-hmm. that, that might be another possibility. But um, I think that their intent was a, a good faith, uh, you know, uh, view of it would be that they are excited about inscriptions because it's going to 
create more demand for block space and mm-hmm. drive up transaction fees, uh, which ultimately get paid out to miners, which they're a part of that ecosystem. Yeah. Does this, so this also gets into when we talk about the ordinal piece, uh, it's about the ordering that the Satoshis were mined. Talk to us about some of this because this I, I find this very confusing and I and I think it's concerning from the standpoint of fungibility. And I know this isn't happening on the base layer. This is happening after this is somebody else on like with their own side chain, right? Or something like that. Uh, I wouldn't describe it as a side chain. I would describe it as kind of uh, the Bitcoin equivalent of astrology, right? Of looking at the moons and the stars and, you know, uh, kind of fitting on some, some kind of story onto it. Um, yeah. and so, um, basically saying that, look, there's, there's going to be less than 2.1 quadrillion Satoshis. So each Satoshi, technically you could attach a serial number to that Satoshi. And then you can have a methodology by which that serial number follows that Satoshi through transactions, despite the fact that with every transaction at, on a technical level, there's no concept of like a Satoshi that was unlocked in this input went to a Satoshi in this output. Um, rather, they get pooled together mm-hmm. uh, when they get unlocked and then they get locked back up into new outputs. And, you know, there's, there's no concept of serial numbers or anything like that on, on chain. Um, but they've, you know, created an, an arbitrary methodology of saying, okay, here's how the serial number follows the Satoshi through transactions. Hey, um, go ahead. No, yeah. what were you going to say? Oh, well, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a harmless hobby, you know, like numerology or uh, anything like that. But, um, you know, I think a concern would be, well, I don't have to get into the concerns right now. We can continue the conversation. No, let, let's, yeah, let's cover it. Let's hear it. Yeah, if, if, if this becomes a popular pastime, right, if this becomes like, a, a, you know, football <laughs> World Cup, uh, you know, and, and people really uh, start to take this seriously, then it, it does make it just where new fungibility could be impacted. But also that if then the inscriptions associated with these ordinals, with these serial numbers, uh, if these inscriptions develop kind of a, a market value, uh, that is significant, then you could see a significant crowding out of Bitcoin transactions with inscriptions. And, uh, you know, somebody who wants to open a lightning channel has to pay, you know, a hundred times more than they otherwise would have because society in general has decided to value, uh, you know, issuing JPEGs on the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, you know, a, a tremendous amount. And that's kind of a, a social layer type thing of, uh, you know, people, we could talk about kind of the psychology of NFTs. Are they a status game of people, you know, trying to show off uh, their art or their patronage of art or their art collection? And with a social phenomenon, it's, yeah, it, 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 I don't know. I don't know if it'll take off, right? If inscriptions and ordinals will become popular. Um, but I think that it would be to the detriment of other use cases for Bitcoin, namely moving, you know, Bitcoin back and forth for payments of goods and services or for any other kind of really monetary transaction rather than symbolic, you know, inscription. 
It's interesting. So you work with a mining company, uh, Riot Platform, as a vice president. And I would think that from the mining side of the house, they might actually be a little excited about something like this. Yeah. So without a doubt, the fact that the transaction fees, uh, you know, accrue to the miners, I think has created kind of some excitement in the mining community around uh, ordinals and inscriptions. I think that from a business perspective, the main question is, will other sources of transaction fees, namely just normal transactions, let's call them. uh, I I don't want to I don't want to describe them, you know, too normatively of like good transactions or bad transactions, but transactions that are, are monetary in nature where the script is really about unlocking the Satoshis. It's not about uh, putting data onto the blockchain. You know, my expectation would be that demand for those monetary transactions would be so great in the future that it really does price out JPEGs and that there's just JPEGs might be a fad that fad NFTs on Solana and Ethereum, you know, they are down big time. If you look at kind of the volumes and their value, Um, but you know, maybe in the next bull market, they'll come back. Maybe not. Whereas I think that monetary transaction demand will continue to increase as Bitcoin you know, as a store of value, as a medium of exchange continues to increase in adoption. Further, I think that if there is, you know, in Ryan's case, uh, we're not just mining Bitcoin, we're also putting Bitcoin on our balance sheet. And so there's kind of the question of, does, how does this impact the accrual of value to BTC, the asset? Um, if People are using block space to store JPEGs and it becomes really expensive to transact on chain to move BTC around. Maybe that would actually decrease the value of BTC and decrease the adoption rate of Bitcoin as a monetary system because that is being crowded out by the adoption rate of Bitcoin as an art gallery. Um, So, you know, there's kind of an open business question there. I don't think that it's necessarily the case that every use of block space should be celebrated because ultimately um, there is a kind of a cannibalism or a crowding out effect in the long term. In the short term, it is true that over the past 18 months, blocks have been at 75 to 80% utilization, mm-hmm. meaning that any kind of marginal increase in block space demand from a JPEG is not actually impacting monetary transactions. Mm-hmm. The reason that we're at 75 to 80% utilization is because of SegWit adoption uh, in 2020, 2021. And so my view is that we should be looking to use block space more and more efficiently in order to have a kind of a margin of safety where, um, meaning that, you know, if, if Bitcoin goes to hundred K this year, um, without a doubt, we go to hundred percent utilization of block space from monetary transactions. And then the only question is how much do people want JPEGs? Right. And if the answer is a lot, 
then we could see that even though there's a massive backlog of monetary transactions in the mempool, uh, that the, the, there might still be a significant amount of block space consumption coming from JPEGs. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Many of us made moves in 2023. No matter what new moves you made last year, TurboTax experts make them count. Did you start working on your first side business to earn some extra cash? That's a move. Did you go back to school to get that degree you've always wanted? That's a move. Or maybe you got married, started working across state lines, cashed in on some gains in the rising stock market, or bought or sold an investment property. Our listeners know, as well as anyone, that every dollar saved on your taxes is a dollar that could otherwise be working for you for the many years that lie ahead. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, getting you every credit and deduction you deserve, filing with 100% accuracy, and getting your max refund guaranteed. Switch to TurboTax. You make your moves, and TurboTax will make them count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. And a special thank you to TurboTax for supporting We Study Billionaires. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. All right, back to the show. You know, for me, when I'm thinking about the JPEG thing, and, and I think everything you said, you also have to keep in the back of your mind, you have these other quote unquote decentralized blockchains and you and I kind of smirk when we, when we hear that competing for the fee and the, the quote unquote minting of these JPEGs being on there. And so maybe it's just a function of where we're at with the, the blocks being so empty right, right now at this exact moment in time. And they're just people were just trying to demonstrate the technology and, and put it out there. But as those fees would potentially go higher with global use for monetary reasons, 
you would think that people that are quote unquote minting JPEGs are going to go find somewhere else to go do that because they clearly don't understand the the difference between truly decentralized protocols and and ones that are not. So they're just going to go wherever. That's my hope. But if it really ingrains itself in kind of the the culture at the social level, then the you know the, the that might not be the case, uh, and it, it might really be something that sticks around on Bitcoin. Well, for a while, it's where I would push back, Pierre, and I think you will totally agree with uh, the thing that's going to really set this thing off in the future is fixed income. The, the inability to, to handle the credit markets and them being inverted to inflation rates because supply chains are breaking down. So when that flood of interest for sound money eventually comes, and it's coming, I just think that it just dwarfs the stupidity that's behind some of these actions, and it just, it just withers away. Agree. So ultimately, that's why you know, I, my view is let's wait and see. And the, the other argument for let's wait and see is that there might actually be legitimate use cases for very large taproot inputs that would be monetary in nature, you know, in order to enable a very large monetary transaction. We don't know exactly what that use case is yet, but if we acted too soon and closed that off mm. by limiting the size of taproot inputs, then maybe we would never see that very useful and valuable use case emerge. But yeah, I, I think that when we think about the lines of defense for Bitcoin block space, I think the first line of defense is the social layer of, you know, when blockchain.com was dragging their feet on implementing SegWit for their wallets, they would constantly get ratioed on tweets from Bitcoiners saying, when SegWit? Today, you know, with Coinbase, we, we always roast them about when lightning and so on and so forth. It, there was also transaction batching uh, that was a big efficiency gain. So I think on the social layer, it is good to be lobbying against inefficient use of block space. The second line of defense is the economic layer of the transaction fees. So ultimately, I think that's what got through to blockchain.com was during the 2021 bull market that their transaction fees for the users of their wallets became really high because they didn't have SegWit and that pressured them into implementing SegWit. So I think economic pressure is the second line of defense and it is highly effective. The third is really the peer-to-peer node level of setting policies about the mempool acceptance and relay you see this, for example, with, I believe, the dust limit. So if you try to send like one Satoshi as a transaction, uh, nodes just won't relay that um, because it's just a waste of block space. But I don't believe that's a consensus layer rule. That's the fourth line of defense is consensus layer rules. So there you see the block size limit is one of those. There's also a signature operations limit. I believe it's 20,000 signature operations per block. There are also per transaction limits. So you're limited in the number of inputs, the number of outputs you can have in a transaction. And, you know, there's, there's other uh, limits that are all sorts of specifics related to scripts and to other 
parts of the transaction and of the block. So I think right now, as far as ordinals and inscriptions are concerned, we're at that first layer, the social layer. And I agree that, you know, we we don't need to immediately jump to the consensus layer to fix this problem. It probably is something that we could wait and watch for five years, 10 years, see how things play out through a couple more bull markets and maybe hyper-Bitcoinization. What I, I didn't, uh, what I reacted really strongly to in the dialogue around uh, ordinals and inscriptions was this view that there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do about it because Bitcoin is censorship resistant and code is law and that there's no, yeah, there's, there's, there's no opportunity here to change the rules. And I just think that's false. That actually is a misunderstanding of the Bitcoin protocol. You know, the Bitcoin protocol does change over time. I mean, as we saw with the Taproot soft fork and there's also no reason to say, oh, we should not have done the Taproot soft fork. I think that's also a mistake. Um, this kind of view that, oh, we have to have ossification. No, I think that we can look at data, we can use reason, and we can look at the code and our, you know, our knowledge of software engineering and protocol research to make amendments uh, as needed in order to you know, help Bitcoin. Now, the other part of the dialogue that I reacted strongly to was this view that Bitcoin block space is a neutral data layer, that um, we should be agnostic as to what data goes into block space Mm -hmm. and that we should let it be a free market. Uh, And I think that you, you iterated that view earlier in the episode. And I just think that's outright false. I think that Bitcoin block space should be and and is currently already and has been for the entire existence of bitcoin regulated zoned for monetary transactions bitcoin as a system is ordered towards the end of being peer-to-peer electronic cash and the cash transactions are what this ledger is for and that treating it as a neutral data layer is like saying, oh, I, I should be able to go onto my bank website and upload JPEGs to my uh, transaction history at JP Morgan. And that's like, sure, but that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense from a rational perspective of we have different systems that are oriented towards different ends and that we should optimize those systems to achieve those ends. And if we treat block space that way, then we should try to find ways to make space for monetary transactions and not subsidize or enable, you know, art galleries, medical records, supply chain management, like all these things where people have said like, oh, we need to use Bitcoin's blockchain technology for all of these different ends. I, I disagree with. I think there there are four monetary purposes. Well, it's, it seems like when SegWit rolled out that that was kind of a general consensus thought that you just shared there because the sender, the input and the output was limited to one megabyte and the 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 witness data was at three megabytes. So you basically had this situation where 
call it three fourths of the of the data that somebody would write into their transaction was for whatever they wanted to put in there as far as the witness data. And then the other part was reserved specifically for transactions so that you don't fill the block with nonsense, right? Like the transactions are always going to be a core part of it, but it's only going to be a percentage of it. And it seems like with Taproot, we get away from this because of maybe a lack of limitation that needs to be built into the input portion. So with SegWit, there was a limit on what you can put in the witness. And that limit was not part of the Taproot proposal. So in the Taproot proposal, all they have is a limit on the number of signatures you can have in the witness. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like that's the soft fork that's needed is that you have to bound that. Well, uh, so from- they have to bound another operation, which is the push operation, which is what's pushing data into the, the witness stack. And so the problem with that, or one of the counter arguments against having a limit on pushes is that there might be really great scripts that are monetary transactions that would use that push, yeah. um, you know, a significant number of times. And so, you know, there's but, lots of- But if it's of- a soft, if, if it's a soft fork, Pierre, sorry to interrupt yeah. you. If it's a soft fork, you can choose to run that or not run it, right? As a node operator. There's a lot of nuance there. I mean, I think that you would not want to run a soft fork that is not rough consensus, meaning that mm-hmm. um, the you know the wider ecosystem is on board with you. So if you try to fly solo, then you would start rejecting blocks that others see as valid, and that you know you're not in consensus there. So I definitely, but you could change your your mempool policy, for example, to not relay transactions that have uh, these big inputs. I don't know how much of an impact that would have because what we saw with Luxor is that they sent that transaction out of band. So it's not like they had to go through the peer-to-peer network and rely on third-party mempools to relay that. I think that there's lots of research work that could be done on specifically how we would structure a soft fork for countering these inscriptions. But again, I think that we're very far from having to get to that fourth layer of a consensus level change, um, given where we're at today. Um, but what, what I wanted to push back on was this idea that there's nothing we can do. Yeah. We, we have yeah. a wide range of tools at our disposal that we can use. Now, we have to use them very carefully. Some of them are very sharp. Some of them, you know, are blunt, uh, for example, you know, nagging people on Twitter, <laughs> but the, the sharp ones of changing the consensus rules, we have to be extremely cautious around that, right? We don't, we don't want to cause more problems than we're solving for sure. And there's an extensive process of review that goes into any soft fork, including the Taproot soft fork, but it's on the table mm-hmm. and that, um, you know, we shouldn't pretend otherwise. I think that folks who are pretending otherwise like inscriptions, right? And that's fine, but I, I don't want any kind of gaslighting of like, there's nothing we can do about it. It's well, the, the better argument would be inscriptions are good. We should not contemplate a soft fork to, you know, essentially uh, put them as invalid. And uh, then we can get into arguments about why. Um, and and that's, that's fine as well. And I think to me, the most interesting argument is really about what are the other opportunities that we can use um, large taproot inputs for 
and um, let's develop those, right? I, I think that that's a really great direction to go in rather than in uh, saying, hey, let's do more research on how to do lots of inscriptions and build a whole economy of e- NFTs on top of the Bitcoin blockchain. I think that that's, that would be a bad outcome. A good outcome is, hey, let's figure out how to get zero knowledge proofs that are very large uh, on in taproot inputs and um, things, things of, of that nature that are related to monetary transactions rather than really inefficient use of black space. So when we look at the uh, when we look at the block, the, the, the full block size of uh, four megabytes and how one megabyte of that is supposed to be just the input and output. When we look at what recently happened with Luxor mining pool, whenever they wrote that block and it was completely full, almost the full four megabytes, was was that all from just the input with the the scripts that they are running from the input, almost all four megabytes? Because my understanding is that that it's supposed to be bound to only one megabyte at that point, right? Because the what's called the stripped size that does not include the witness. That just has to be less than one megabyte. Okay. Then the witness can be up to four megabytes. Okay. Is kind of the there are three. The, the witness data can be up to three, and then be up to four, because it can. Um, oh, I see what you're raw limit, right? Because the input was under the the one, it barely used it. So then I guess the the witness data can consume the remainder to, for less than four. Okay, I got you. You know, this is this is where I get a little frustrated with just the JPEG thing in general, uh, and I just want to kind of paint a, an example for people. So anybody can mint a JPEG on whatever blockchain they or quote unquote blockchain they want to use. Obviously, Bitcoin, because it's truly decentralized, is a place that a person would want to store whatever or memorializes. I think a better word, an event that it actually took place. That makes sense to me that people want to do that. But to store the actual full data of a JPEG on the blockchain doesn't make sense to me uh, from just a legal standpoint. So think about it. So like, let's say Beeple, he's super famous for selling these JPEGs for $50 million or whatever. If he would sell you one of his JPEGs, that you're now the owner of it and you can basically do whatever you want with it, you can license it or, or whatever. And you want to memorialize that event, that sale, that proof of sale into the Bitcoin blockchain. I guess I'm of the opinion that a person should be able to do that to memorialize that event. And and it does not take much data to do that because you could hash the contract or whatever and then stick that that public key into the into the hash into the blockchain to prove that it took place. So at the end of the day, like when a person would, let's say that I would, or it's another person would argue, well, he sold it to me versus the person that supposedly has this thing written into the blockchain. The way that's actually going to get adjudicated is in a court system, no matter what. That's how that gets adjudicated, whether it's in the blockchain or not. The blockchain is just a, a really great way of proving it's, it's, uh, Oh, what do you go when you get the stamp from the government person? Uh, oh, geez. Notarized. <laughs> Getting it notarized, right? It's, it's the best form of notarization that, that's ever existed. So I guess when, when I see the current setup where people are completely jamming data into, 
an entire block with just one or five transactions in it, to me, there's, there's a major inefficiency that's taking place in the existing setup because it's not accounting for the first principles thinking of your, the, the best thing that you can use it beyond money is for the notarization piece, uh, which does not require a lot of data at all. Yeah. So I think that that's one way of conceiving of this data layer. Another, perhaps one that would make more sense than what you just described is, you know, the, there are 3d CAD designs for 3d printing firearms Mm -hmm. that are often difficult to download in foreign countries that have Mm. strict controls over that. And that this is a way of creating a censorship resistant way of disseminating information that, you know, the government wants to, to, to ban essentially. And so that to me makes a lot more sense than the Beeple, you know, intellectual property situation. And that, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for because I am pro second amendment and it's like, okay, well on some level, if you're willing to pay the transaction fee, then it is what it is because furthermore, even even with the soft fork that I described of somehow limiting the number of op push or limiting the size of inputs, there would still be, it, all that would do is make it more expensive to put data on the blockchain. It would not stop people from doing it. There's no way to stop people from doing it. Yeah. All we're talking about here is how do we, like, di- t- how do we tax it? How do we disincentivize it? And so people would still be able to put, you know, 3D gun uh, diagrams on the Bitcoin blockchain, they would just have to pay a much higher transaction fee, total transaction fee. And also it would be less efficient because now they would have to say, let's say they would have to use up three megabytes instead of one megabyte because we have created an artificial constraint on the input size. Now they've got to create lots of inputs in lots of transactions to add up to that data. So there's lots of trade-offs here uh, and to, to consider, but that, that was the use case that, that tug at my heartstrings. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. 
And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Well, and I think that that's a great counter to what I was saying. I guess the, the the response I have for you is is why does it have to happen on layer one? Can't we push some of these activities up onto the second layer or, or higher? Because it's Bitcoin being layer one being a global broadcast system means that it makes it censorship resistant in a way that any other layer would not be. So, um, for example, with Lightning, the data storage would happen on specific lightning nodes, not on all lightning nodes. So in order to use the lightning network, you would not need to download this data. Whereas in order to use the Bitcoin network, you have to download this data. And so that's really the the difference between a global broadcast system and what you could describe as kind of a local point-to-point system. Yeah, it really really seems like people, like there, there needs to be a deep conversation at at a global level on just use cases outside of money and basically notarization on layer one, and then really kind of get at the heart at what you're saying here, which is this uh, op push within the the input of each transaction. I don't don't know that you're going to get consensus built because this is a highly technical 
conversation and it, and it's it seems like the consensus could get really quite confused like the the general population could get quite confused as to what to to side with or what right uh, how how do you see that kind of taking place moving forward yeah so the the i think we're already there in terms of the confusion uh there's lots of confusion and i think that it it will crystallize when if inscriptions continue to if if it's not a fad that fizzles out if they continue to be used and that they drive up transaction fees materially for other participants in the system then i think that we'll see the conversation around it evolve mm-hmm. beyond its current state now whether that will evolve into a soft fork I don't know. Um, that will probably take decades of, you know, evolution and maybe, you know, we'll, we'll see. But uh, the uh, my hope is that we can just snuff this out at the first line of defense, which is the social layer of saying like, hey, guys, like, not cool. We're not into this. Stop doing it. Find something else to do. I don't think that's going. I don't think that that's going to work, Pierre. I think that the thing that works is just economic incentive, and maybe we just maybe we yeah. just need the world and, and credit markets to start uh, reflecting reality and more, you know, use on the base yeah. layer from you know all the all the pent up fiat that's been stuffed into just worthless things around the world. I agree. I think ultimately it'll be a combination of that first and second line of the economic incentives of transaction fees going up combined with the social layer saying, Hey, this, this isn't worth it. Like nobody's going to buy your worthless mint. So don't waste your money, you know, on these high transaction fees. And then that combination, because yeah, that's, I, I hope that that's enough and that we won't have to continue this debate. Um, that already is, I think very, very muddled. And, um, you know, there's just a lot of conflicting incentives as well, where really the, the developers, they don't want to do a soft fork that limits the size of inputs because they're interested in opportunities to use that for valid transactions, right? Or sorry, wrong terminology there for legitimate monetary transactions. So they are opposed to having that conversation. I totally get folks in the mining industry are opposed to such a soft fork because they want to drive up transaction fees. Again, I totally understand where they're coming from. And then you have Bitcoin people who maybe see this as like, hey, let's get the NFT narrative going in Bitcoin and that that will pump the Bitcoin price up and kind of reduce demand for Ethereum and Solana. Again, you know, that's a perspective. And the only people that are really um, hurt in a way by this is one node operators who are resource constrained, so that you know they 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 have limited bandwidth. They have um, a, a, you know they're living in a country that does not have fiber optic internet. Why not? That's not me, but I'm happy to be their representative. <laughs> and uh, people who are trying to send. Uh, small value transactions that are monetary in nature over the Bitcoin network. 
whether it's a, Pierre, the, a the, channel or sending a payment. But the block the block size as a whole is not larger. So you're just saying that the the cost to rebalance channels is going up because you're cluttering the chain. Yep. Okay, I gotcha. And then oh. it's like, well, if I wanted if I wanted to send fifty dollars worth of Bitcoin as remittances from uh, El Salvador to the U.S. or vice versa, you know, if there's no JPEGs, that might cost two cents. Mm-hmm. If there are JPEGs, it might cost five dollars, mm-hmm. right? So you're talking about a ten percent fee instead of a fraction of a percentage, and so you know, the JPEG people would say, you know so sad, too bad, you know, uh, use lightning instead. And then they go and use a custodial lightning wallet, uh, instead and, you know, pay. Yeah. That's where you really see it is the custodians. Uh, you're going to push people into a custodian situation where they're not holding their own keys because it's they're You're using their services that have been, it's cheaper for them to consolidate it all. Right. And so that's, that's maybe where that pushes it. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's one argument. And, um, yeah, so I think there, there's, there's so many different, different people benefit from inscriptions and different people incur the cost of inscriptions. Mm. And it's hard to tell where that nets out of like, oh, on net inscriptions are good for Bitcoin or bad for Bitcoin. And to, to prove that I just, I, I, I have my, my gut instinct on it, but I, I think that it's an open area of debate. I don't like that there's folks on social media who are trying to say that there is no debate or that, you know, it's bad to argue against inscriptions and like their morality policing the the conversation around this. No, I think that let's let's air out the arguments pro and con. And um, it's it's good to talk about it, even if we're not, you know, contemplating a soft fork to fix it immediately Um, that that might be in the future in several years or decades. But in the meantime, I think it's good to have a conversation about it. People have raised the concern of illegal imagery being written into the blockchain. And then this potentially being an attack vector from the state is saying, hey, you're running a full node and you have block whatever. And there is there is a very concerning picture that's been written into that block and you're distributing that, that information and that data. What are your thoughts around this one? My understanding is that in the existing Bitcoin blockchain in op returns, there's already uh, illegal images. And so I think that that's already the case without inscriptions that then uh, I'll leave it to the lawyers on you know, what the specifics are there. But so far, it hasn't really been an issue, despite that imagery being on the Bitcoin blockchain for several years now. Now, then there might be a question of quantity, right? What happens mm-hmm. if there's a lot of it on the Bitcoin blockchain, you know, and that's where that's an open question going forward. So yeah, my immediate thought on this is you could you could run a pruned node. Um, you still download it. You still have to download it to prove that you that that yeah, all your transactions are valid. But I could you could say you could send me and let's say I trust you that this is that if I start my node right here, all the illicit images or whatever are after that block height, right? And I could just run a prune node, and then uh, and then I'm running a node and I'm not uh, 
I'm not propagating and I'm not suggesting that this is <laughs> this is the solution. I'm just for maybe jurisdictions, let's say you're in a country and they are they are cracking down on node node runners that people running nodes that because of this argument and it's it's a localized state level attack for whatever that jurisdiction is, is that the workaround for people in those types of jurisdictions? It could be. I don't know if software that exists that would enable or that has that built in yet. Maybe that that you know that that will get written. And I just think that it would be a shame if we had to change kind of the average Bitcoin node trust model around you know assuming validity for certain outputs because of this problem. But there's, yeah, there's certainly ways that, you know, mitigate that, that issue. And-, and, and most of it is just because the, the way that the blocks connect, you're effectively hashing, get into some of the technical specs for people that would hear this and say, oh no, I'm concerned. What are they talking about as far as like a pruned, a, a pruned node? How does that work from a more of a technical sense? If you can explain it, Pierre. Yes. Yeah, so currently how a pruned node works is that you download all of the blocks when you're doing initial block download. And every time you download one, you verify that the output that is being spent and the input that is spending that output are valid. And so the, you know, the signature in there gets verified and that way, you know, there's no risk of an invalid input spending money that is not theirs, essentially. Um, and so that does mean that you have to download the input and you have to process it. And then the pruning part is that the data, after it has been verified, gets deleted. And that's the pruning part. Now, one nuance here is that in the Bitcoin Core software, there is a configuration parameter called assume valid that will not verify inputs and outputs signatures and thus you know running the the script before a certain height mm-hmm. and so this allows people to download bitcoins and verify the blockchain more quickly than they otherwise would with a small trade-off of, hey, you have to trust that the developers put in the valid hash at that height. Mm-hmm. And historically, that hasn't been an issue because it's really easy to then verify that hash and Very to turn easy. off assume yeah. valid. Yeah. Like, I always turn off assume valid because I'm, you know, a psychopath uh, purist. <laughs> but in reality, it's a, a, it's a legitimate way of uh, accelerating initial block download. Yeah. Yeah, and it is. It's very simple to be able to to validate that at whatever block height you want. Um, yeah. So, okay, let's just fast forward five years into the future. Your highest probability conviction of what this conversation sounds like five years from now. Remember when we were freaking out about inscriptions and uh, people were trying to shill them on social media? Yeah, it's the same thing with Satoshi Dice. You know, now we say, oh, remember when you could gamble on the Bitcoin blockchain with Satoshi Dice? Or remember when colored coins were a thing? Or Omni? Omni is like uh, tethers on uh, the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, USDT. That doesn't exist anymore. It got priced out. 
and it migrated to other blockchains. And so I don't think this is going to have staying power at all, but that's actually, I think that's a good thing because then for those situations where you do want to use an inscription, like your, your 3d gun file or whatever, like there won't be so much consternation about you doing that. And there won't be a limit on, you know, op push uh, stopping you from doing that. So I hope that just at the social layer, people don't start valuing inscriptions and the, you know, in five years, we'll, we'll just be laughing about how, uh, you know, we thought that it was a big problem (laughs) or I did. Last question, Charlie Munger, he's at it again. He, uh, was in the wall street journal today. What are your thoughts? Tell people about the article and tell people your thoughts, Pierre. Yeah. So, um, I started reading the article with an open mind as I always, you know, read everything with with an open mind. And it was interesting. I actually agreed with him on the initial kind of framing, which is that there are corporations that are issuing unregistered securities and calling them cryptocurrencies. And they're doing it in a way that avoids having to disclose what they would normally have to disclose when raising financing from the general public through uh, debt or equity. And then his conclusion is that we should ban all cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, which to me does not follow from the arguments that he's making. Mm -hmm. So that was one. And, you know, we can talk about the merits of regulating uh, token offerings and all that. But what I found to be really bizarre was his bringing up the Chinese Communist Party Mm-hmm. And and praising the Chinese Communist Party for banning Bitcoin in China. And, you know, that might work well to for a certain audience. I don't see that working very well with the Wall Street Journal audience of, hey, let's emulate communism. And I don't see it working well with the current House leadership. Because in order for Charlie Munger to get his way within the next two years, he would have to get this bill through Congress. And the current House leadership is rather, the the Republican majority is rather hawkish on China and opposed to communism. In fact, currently what they're working on is a statement that is, uh, you know, very anti-communism is like this week's number one priority. So for Munger to try to persuade them by pointing to the Chinese Communist Party as a role model, I think that he's actually benefiting Bitcoin and Mm -hmm. severely undermining his cause. Um, So I guess I'm happy that he got this published in the Wall Street Journal. And perhaps that's why the Wall Street Journal allowed him to publish this as a giant cell phone, self-sabotaging move (laughs) for the anti-Bitcoin cause. Where you know he's saying like, okay, let's have you know Elizabeth Warren and the Chinese Communist Party on one side, and then you know Kevin McCarthy and every honest American on the other side of this debate, which I think is great framing. Pierre, I can't I can't disagree with anything you just said, and I and it, I just find it so strange. This isn't the first time he's brought up the the China thing and how he agrees with what they're doing, and it's just like. What in the world are you talking about right now? It just does not make any sense. It it does. It does. It's totally. 
especially the 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 irony is this guy became a billionaire through free and open markets or you know prior to them becoming completely manipulated here in the past decade he's a total beneficiary of this capitalistic system and this democracy and for him on his final you know days to be out there trumpeting the idea of communism and socialism is just I, I, it, it literally takes, I have no words for it other than disgust. So, and, and people who are listening to that, he has so many brilliant insights throughout his lifetime that it just seems completely incoherent with some of the other insights that he's had outside of Bitcoin, obviously, you know, on psychology and other things. It's just crazy to me. I, I agree. And, you know, I, I'm a fan of value investing. Benjamin Graham was one of the first investing books, uh, the intelligent investor that I read. And, you know, one way to look at it very cynically is that Berkshire Hathaway is lobbying the Texas legislature to enable them to subsidize them, to pay them to build natural gas peaker plants that mm. turn on when there's a deficit of uh, electricity supply uh, in ERCOT and the Bitcoin miners who turn off when there's a deficit like this that are through demand response are directly competing with peaker plants. Mm -hmm. And so from Berkshire Hathaway's perspective, Bitcoin mining in Texas is competing with their energy business. And so any kind of policies that they can advance that are anti-Bitcoin are in the interests of Berkshire Hathaway's uh, business. So that's kind of the cynical take on it. I don't know if they're connected or not, uh, but uh, that's one way to maybe couch this in more capitalist uh, terms. Hmm. Fascinating. Any other highlights and things that are going on right now that you wanted to bring up? Not right now. I think that we'll, you know, <laughs> we've covered a lot of ground uh, in, in the past hour. There are things on the horizon, though, but I'll, I'll come back uh, and we'll please, we'll have- please do. Please do, sir. You are always welcome. Hierro Shard Riot Platforms. Uh, they got a name change, correct? That's right. Yeah, okay. we were leaving the blockchain behind because Riot is really approaching Bitcoin mining in a vertically integrated way. Uh, we acquired an electrical equipment designer and manufacturer, ESS Metron, hmm. uh, and you know we're we build our own hosting facilities. We're a construction company, and that by vertically integrating, we can kind of control our supply chain and uh, really be the lowest cost producer of Bitcoin out there. Um, so that's that's why we went with the name change. Uh, you know, platforms, not blockchain. Wow, that's pretty exciting stuff. You guys moving upstream, and I like it. Pierre, thank you so much for making time. I think we threw this together in just the last couple hours, and uh, I was very excited to be able to have this conversation because like so many out there, I'm learning, and you are an expert for sure in many of these areas, and uh, it's just such a breath of fresh air to talk to somebody that has so much common sense uh, behind the way that they're looking at things. So thanks for making time and coming on. Thanks for having me on, Preston. Looking forward to the next one. Cheers. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So 
anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.